The College Game Day podcast is presented by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. We got a real simple plan. One man, one mission. Georgia has won the national championship. You're a fan, you might think this is sports heaven. This might be college football heaven. This is ESPN's College Game Day podcast. Now alongside Pete Thamel, here's Reese Davis. Clemson makes a quarterback change, whether they know it or not. Can you overcome a disastrous first impression and dumb loses more than smart wins, especially if you cannot execute a snap? This is the College Game Day podcast for Monday, October 24th, headed toward the end of this month when you establish yourself pushing toward a championship run in the month of November. Reese Davis and Pete Thamel here. Pete, let's start with where we were this past weekend, Oregon and UCLA. And Oregon was written off, and understandably so, after the disastrous performance against Georgia on the opening Saturday of the season. Yet you come back against an undefeated UCLA team, and they were impressive. They they looked the part. I personally believe, believe that ad, all other contenders having a similar type albatross that they cannot get back into the into the college football playoff at the end of the season. But what they can do is win the Pac-12 and at least make people reevaluate them because they they looked like a they they looked like an excellent football team to me on Saturday. Yes. So we're going to call this the Reese Davis principle because you brought it up very early in the season in a pretty definitive fashion. And I'm certainly not saying this to gently tease, but you you, citing, I believe, Penn State in 16 and their loss to Michigan. And there was another Ohio uh, State in 17. uh, Yes. Yes. The grand Iowa uh, reckoning there. Um, Back when Iowa had an offense. So it was a while ago. Um, (laughs) The you know, can you have a blowout loss and then, and then come back? And, and I agree with all of your thoughts on this right now. And now we have to, now I think it's fair to ask Reese, can Oregon be an outlier? Can, can they be, if we see some 07 level chaos, can a one loss Oregon be better than like a two loss SEC team that, that, that comes in? I don't, if, if you're comparing one loss, and they will be a conference champion. That's sort of always been like a little bit of a, we'll apply the conference champion when it's convenient thing in the playoff, as opposed to, I think like an actual determining metric. That's always been my, my opinion of it. It's sort of like a, it's a, it's a chip by convenience, not anything that's uh, you know, biblical from the mountaintop uh, if, if you will. But I do think if, if I do think that if Oregon goes and wins the Pac-12, they're back in the conversation. I think that's a, that's a fair way to, uh, I think that's a fair way to cast it at this point. I would call it unlikely, but I would have thought the second week in September, it was impossible. So mm-hmm. credit to them, credit to Dan Lanning, credit to Bo Nix, uh, credit to Kenny Dillingham. I thought he called the heck of a game on Saturday. Um, look, they're they're a very good football team. Um, would they befall a similar fate if they played a high-end SEC team? Probably, you know, I think they would probably figure out a way to make it closer. I think a team, mm-hmm. I think you have to give teams room to grow and evolve and change over the course of the season. So, and Dan Lanning, maybe more than any other coach in the country, deserves credit for evolving Oregon throughout this time. I, I want to be clear about this. That's something that I firmly believe. Mm-hmm. There's no rule against teams or players improving, and certainly they are different teams 
at the end than they are at the beginning. But when you have a championship structure that is as exclusive as the one is in college football, then there's not a lot of room for error. There is room for loss. I don't think there is often room for catastrophic loss. It was the number one question that I got from Oregon people, from Pac-12 people over the course of the weekend is if they went out, can they get back in? And my answer was, I don't think so. I think the albatross is, is too much. But the caveat I offered then was, what if everyone else has something similarly embarrassing? It doesn't have to be just the magnitude of the loss. It doesn't have to be a 30-point loss. It could be a loss to a bad team. You know, it could be something. Now, now Clemson turned out okay, but we showed the, the highlight on Saturday, the flashback of the loss in what would that have been, 17, that they had in the then Carrier Dome to Syracuse, a Syracuse team that at the time might have been undefeated. They certainly had a winning record, but they didn't win another game the rest of the season. So when you evaluated the resume at the end, that qualifies as a bad loss, even with the injury to the quarterback that night and all of those types of things. If the other teams you're being evaluated against have something on their resume that also is a major uh, a major smudge on it, a, a black mark, as it were, then I think that changes the equation a little bit. Hard to get past it, but if, if the loss is awful and non-competitive, but it's to the undefeated number one team in the country, and you're being evaluated against somebody who has a loss to a mediocre to bad team, or if they have a loss like the ones you referenced, the, the Michigan uh, defeat of Penn State in 16, the Iowa defeat of Ohio State in 17, you have something like that. I think it does change the equation a little bit for them. So I think it's a very narrow road, a slim road, uh, unlikely one. But if they could get a few more teams to have something awful on their resume, too, then it could be helpful because they certainly have improved and they are nowhere near the same team that they were the opening week. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> there's a small chance. There's a small chance. I want to be clear because I think when I say these things, I'm speaking in a grand fashion and mm -hmm. not, you know, not like I'm trying to hand it down from Mount Sinai, but just sort of looking at it globally as mm -hmm. to how I would evaluate it if I were in the room. Sure. It doesn't mean that I think that a team is exactly what it is at its worst moment or even mm -hmm. what it is at its best moment or what it is in September. It's the same in December. It just means that when you have a small set of games and 12 games, 12 to 13 games is pretty small and you have an exclusive tournament of only four teams, then every little thing has to count and can be a little bit of a differentiating factor. I agree. So we, we dove right into the wonky stuff and we skipped the fun stuff. Uh, what was your favorite part of Eugene? One of my favorite stops on the old tour. I know, I know you have an affinity for it too. What, uh, mm -hmm. what stood out when you look back uh, on, on the run there? Well, I will say this. I always forget which order the names go in the restaurant. If it's Beppe and Gianni's or if it's Gianni and Beppe's. And I apologize for that because the I think it's Beppe and Gianni's. Beppe and Gianni's. I apologize for that because I should have that name committed to memory because that if if ever you find yourself in Eugene mm -hmm. and if you're craving an Italian meal and if you're not craving an Italian meal, start craving one. <laughs> and if you can get in, if you can get in the door, that place 
is one of the best Italian restaurants in which I've ever eaten. We've had the North End versus Little Italy and all of this. So I'm going to give a shout out to my favorite, which is on the Upper East Side of New York City, Campagnola. I think it's the best. It's, it's old school Italian. I love it. Very little ever reaches that stratosphere. And say it again. Is it is it Beppe and Gianni? Did I get it right? I don't know why I can't get that in my head. I'm going to look it up. All right, you'll look it up. Anyway, yeah. Uh, Beppe and Gianni, Gianni and Beppe, both of whom are delightful gentlemen, by the way. Um, it's right there, man. I mean, that meal was tremendous. And, and I think the absent, just the fun stuff that we get to do like that occasionally, the responsiveness, the size of the crowd, the engagement of a huge number of students at who were there starting at like two in the morning. Some of them never left two in the morning, local time that, I mean, those things, it was just a, a tremendous setting and scene and it delivered as it always does when we go to Eugene. Yeah. Well, I didn't uh, I didn't get the look for Beppe and Gianni's this time, but I was there in 19 when I was in town to profile Justin Herbert. And I went over on a on a Tuesday night and uh, some of the, some of the best people to learn from in college towns are bartenders. And I sat at the bar at uh, Beppe and Gianni's and the bartender told me that uh, there was like a back door he pointed to where Chip Kelly, when he was the head coach, would come pick up his dinner to go at uh, at night. And old Chip being from New Hampshire has probably had some pretty good Italian food down there on the uh, <laughs> on the I on the I-93-95 corridor uh, coming down into Boston. So uh, that is that is his that is Chip's spot. Um, and I think if he had his brothers, he probably would have joined you there on, uh, on on Friday night if he didn't have a little bit of a uh, didn't have a little bit of a game to coach. But yeah, that, it's it's a great spot. It's a great town. I thought the energy was unbelievable. I hadn't been to a game in Austin in quite a few years, and you forget until you experience this on the sidelines how that stadium it almost looks like a, like a European soccer stadium. Cause it's like somewhat covered and just the noise stays in there and there's a buzz mm-hmm. and they have great fans. there. great fans. It is, I, you know, people ask me and I'm sure they ask you Reese, Hey, where would you go for a boy's trip bachelor party? Like, you know, I have some buddies who do like one game a year in different mm-hmm. places. It is not easy to get to Eugene, Oregon, but when you do, it is one of the best college football experiences in the country, in uh, in my opinion, in we got it all right. We had pouring rain at six a.m. in Eugene. The sun came out and it was warm for a while. Then it got dark weirdly early. It got cold. I felt like they gave us like the the full Eugene experience all in uh, all in an afternoon on Saturday. But what a day! What a performance by the Ducks! It was it was pretty neat there. It, it really was, and we we had the brief conversation I mentioned on the podcast, and probably jinxed it. Christine Williamson told me that I was. You know, I really was eager to sit down with Bo Nix and I had, you know, nobody wants to be bored with travel issues, but uh, like ridiculous delays, change airlines, all this stuff. And I, I couldn't make the interview. So Christine graciously, and she did a tremendous job, uh, went in and, and did the interview for me because I couldn't get there in time. And I thought it was really important to hear from Bo because this has been a season in which one of the storylines has been redemptive stories of maligned quarterbacks. And I think his is particularly compelling because of his background and uh, affinity, affiliation, and connection with Auburn. I mean, he, like like my son, people probably know this. My wife is an Auburn fan. uh, So we we are, you know, completely in the allegiances divide. The kids are even divided. My son roots for Auburn. My daughter roots for Alabama. And my son was talking yesterday. I was talking with him on the phone. He was talking about how, as an Auburn fan, it was, you know, a little frustrating to him. Not that he's very happy for Bo, but it was like, okay, what does this indicate about 
the program that I root for, that this guy can go out there and fulfill his potential. I wanted to hear from Bo, and I thought he addressed it pretty candidly with Christine, mm-hmm. what that was like for him. And even in talking to some of the Oregon staff members and, you know, and, and words from his family that he's, he's having fun and maybe in some cases more fun than he's ever had because he doesn't feel the weight of the world um, on him to whether it's to live up to this childhood dream or this responsibility to carry the program and, to, you know, whatever it might be, that's probably somewhere it would take a psychologist, you know, to get deep in there, but somewhere in the subconscious that had to have weight on it. And I'm not, I'm not saying at all that, that players shouldn't go to their childhood favorites and, and, uh, and step into that responsibility. And I thought Bo did that. But I think on the flip side, when it doesn't work out just the way you plan and you go to some other place, oftentimes that can be freeing. And it can, there can be, while you're still feeling great responsibility as the quarterback of an outstanding team and you are fully engaged with your teammates, on some level, I wonder if somewhere in the back of the mind that that is somehow freeing to you, that there's not that additional pressure of everybody leaning forward, waiting to be able to put up a banner, build a statue of your in your likeness to make you the savior of the program. And then the second it doesn't go well, um, I don't want to say turn on you because I think that's unfair. I don't think the Auburn fan base turned on Bo, but uh, for it to become dis- disappointing. And that's a lot. That's a lot for anybody of any age to deal with. And I think it's been freeing and it, maybe it shows in his play. Yeah, and I think... Oregon was a good choice for him. Uh, in part, he had you know familiarity with Dillingham, so he knew what the offense was going to be to some extent. So there wasn't. It's hard to go somewhere and learn a totally new system when you have a, a small window to thrive, right? So it was a smart choice in that football sense. Now, this is not an insult to Oregon's program, but Oregon football in Eugene means a lot, but it mm-hmm. doesn't mean everything, right? right? Like it's there's just places where. Football is probably rightly prioritized, right? You know, the old SEC, it just means more. Like, if the Ducks win, the Ducks lose, people are going to go on their hikes the next day. They're going to go on with their lives. And that, there's there's a lot of that in college football, and I think that's generally healthy. It is not something where, you know, people are going to be pouring through spring practice nine video and critiquing how you throw out routes. Like, it's just mm-hmm. that that's not the level of fandom. They have elite fandom. We just talked about it. It's an unbelievable scene. It's an unbelievable mm-hmm. place. But you can go be a 20-something-year-old kid there, and you can go to, you know, uh, go get some Thai food. Nobody's going to bother you, that kind of thing. That I think that part of, like, being a human has been different for Bo Nix there in a, in, a very, uh, in a very positive way. You know, and you mentioned Kenny Dillingham, who had some familiarity with Bo and is doing a great job. Speaking of being freed up, I mean, this might be an opportunity for Kenny, too, because the other places where he's been the coordinator, there's been kind of a, you know, there's been a head coach with a huge offensive presence and impact on the way the game is called. And I've, I found it interesting. You were kind enough to bring him over uh, to, to meet me. And I got to chat with him for a little while and he was being very self-deprecating almost to a fault saying, Hey, you know what? He said, Bo is, Bo is changing plays. You know, I'll give him three options on a play and he's got the freedom. He's like going completely off to something else. And we score a touchdown on a run play and they go, Oh, what a, you know, what a great call by Dillingham. He goes, and really the whole, the whole thing's Bo. So they're kind of working together. And I spoke of Bo being freed up, but Dillingham, who is a rising star and a young coach 
probably going to be on some lists for some jobs here. He's also found a little freedom there, and, mm. and that showed. He called, as you mentioned earlier, he called a great game against uh, against what had been, you know, a, a pretty effective UCLA defense. Maybe not in the same way you would look at it as a dominant defense, but one that had been effective in the right spot. Kenny's only thirty-two, and he's been with Mike Norvell. He's been with Gus Malzahn. Um, you know, he's been at some, you know, at some places with some good offensive minds. So. I thought it was interesting. I went over to, to the Ducks walkthrough on Friday, Reese, and uh, some people on staff pointed out to me that O-line coach Adrian Clem, uh, I remember him in Boston here as uh, Bill Belichick's first draft pick out of Hawaii, but Adrian Clem's been around and he's called games in college football. Uh, Drew Marringer, the tight end coach, called games for Rutgers. Um and Junior Adams called games uh, at, at Western Kentucky. So it's a, I don't know if I ever remember a staff where pretty much every coach you know, on the offensive side has called games. So I do think that those the other coaches on the offensive staff spoke about the openness to input both in preparation and in game. And that's, uh, to me, a rare amount of experience. And I think that's really helped shape this duck offense this year, uh, especially when you have a defensive-minded head coach who's sort of letting that room go. So I, I thought that was a pretty cool dynamic. And, you know, look, it's half a season. You've got to show some longevity. But handling himself at the what we call the Zotron board with Pollock and me on college game day, Dan Landing, I mean, calling an onside kick that really stole a possession and really swung that game uh, in Oregon's favor at the right moment. Half a season, you don't want to get carried away and, you know, start declaring people, you know, legendary coaches on the basis of a half a season. But off to a good start. I'll put it that way in terms of comfort in his own skin, relatability, recruiting, coming back from some adversity with the opening game that, you know, that Oregon fans are sick of hearing about, but it's going to be part of the story of their season. And then uh, having the big win Saturday. He's there's some guys who step into that role and they just seem to fit. Mm -hmm. early returns would indicate that Dan Lanning is precisely that. Yeah. Dan Lanning has done a remarkable job and, you know, got to spend some time around him on both Friday and, and Saturday. And there's a comfort in the role. Um, you know, you're around a lot of first year coaches when you do this, as long as you and I have Reese and there's some coaches you're with and you, you look at them and they're like, is this what the head coach should be doing? Whereas for, for Lanning, I really felt like there's been a, there's been, it's all been clear and concise and comfortable. Uh, he's remained being a fairly regular human being, which sometimes guys become first year coaches and they lose their minds a little bit. And to his credit, he stayed dial in and didn't change significantly after that first, uh, after that first loss. Um, perhaps most impressively, and you may not have noticed this amid the, the, the darkness and fog on uh, Saturday morning. But he wore a uh, he wore a hoodie under a suit coat, which I thought was like a very Eugene outfit. I, I thought that was like sort of the perfect uh, the the perfect balance of like I have to dress up for this, but I don't want to. <laughs> and it might rain while we're outside here, so I'm gonna have a hood just in case. I thought that showed uh, I thought that showed great uh, great great in you know in game you know pregame preparation with some you know with with the potential for in game adjustments. And and in addition to that, Pete. That takes a certain level of style and confidence and, uh, dare I say, swag to yeah. pull that off well. Anybody can put it on, you know, and, and do <laughs> it. But Dan pulled – and to yes, I did notice that, actually, and I thought he pulled it off uh, really well. He looked 
it looked like you know he could have uh, he could have taken this outfit, thrown it up there on Instagram, and said, "Hey, you know, follow me for more outfit ideas for cool casual right here uh, with a with a little bit of a spark to it." So yeah, he pulled it off well. So everything is everything's fitting well. Followed the his gut. Kick, just to reiterate, that was a monster, monster call. That changed everything in that yeah. game. That's a that's a touchdown game, and maybe that game's in flux at the end if he if he doesn't make that call. I just thought it was like uh, it just that, that's the collision of of everything. Preparation, onions, as your friend mm-hmm. Bill Raftery would say, and uh, in execution too on on that uh, on on that part. So just a. Just a we're going to go seize the moment and seize the day type mentality that you could feel permeating through that program being around him for 40 and, years. And it wasn't reckless. And nope. we've seen we've seen other coaches, one of whom is no longer with us this season <laughs> with, uh, with Scott Frost earlier. And look, it always seems reckless if you don't get it, right? But in the aftermath, in the postgame, he talked about seeing something in, U- in UCLA's kickoff return coverage that gave them confidence it would work. And to me... It does still take the onions for sure, but not not just having something occur to you and saying, "Hey, let's try an onside kick here and see if we can see if we can fool them." You know, there was there was an element of planning to it and feeling the right moment of of when that would happen. Which the same could be said for the Clemson Syracuse game on Saturday, feeling the moment and making a change that that's a, a risky. Hard thing to do. Uh, DJ Uyangalele, who's played really well this year, we've praised him rightfully so because he's earned that, wasn't having his best day. Um, had, had turned the ball over at a scoop and score that he that he gave up when they were in the, in the red zone going in. Had thrown a couple of tough interceptions. So they go to Cade Klubnik and Clemson rallies. They beat Syracuse. They hold off and Klubnik, they weren't perfect, and some of the stats looked very similar in terms of yards per play and all of that type of thing. But there was a certain crispness and energy, um, the the proverbial spark from the backup quarterback that, to me, that to me felt very much like the the Kelly Bryant to Trevor Lawrence year. Klubnik is a big deal. I'm not saying he's Trevor Lawrence yet. And with all due respect to Kelly, who I thought was a great guy and a, and a, and a solid college quarterback, they're probably uh, part of the skill set that DJ has that's greater than what Kelly had. So I'm not saying it's an absolutely perfect comparison. But when Trevor came into the game, saving one night in a game I called against Texas A&M where Kelly Bryant saved them, by the way. They lose that game if they didn't have Kelly Bryant, in my judgment. Um, but save that, the other times when Trevor Lawrence came in, there was a real spark. To the offense. That's what it looked like when Klubnik came in against Syracuse on Saturday. Do you agree with that assessment? I do agree with that assessment. I think you're, I think you're right. I was just about to make the point that I think DJ Uyungle is probably 15% better than Kelly Bryant. Mm-hmm. And I do not think Cade Klubnik is Trevor Lawrence because Trevor Lawrence is like a once every decade guy. Yeah. So like right. comparing exactly. anybody that's why I tried to go, Lawrence, very, that's why yes. I tried to be very careful with that because yes. you know how that's, how that's going to go yes. on the social so, media. So that's what makes this tricky for, for Dabo, right? Mm-hmm. Is because the, the, the gap when he made the move from, and if I ever remember right, Kelly Bryant was in the portal and in Missouri, you know, within within two three weeks like that mm-hmm. that unspooled pretty fast 
did we even have a portal then, or did he just transfer? I don't. He even just remember. transferred them, but I think he, yeah. I think he was, he had his degree, so he was eligible to yes. just play the next year. But he had yes. to preserve. I actually, I don't want to take us down this rabbit hole. I, I was one of the ones who defended Kelly Bryant because sure. he, you've got a short period of time in which to play, and mm-hmm. if he played one more snap for them, his year was gone with the way the rule yeah. was, and his career was yeah. over. Absolutely. So I, I, w- yeah. I was on his side on that one. But anyway, yeah. yeah. That's, no, that's Hank Bachmeyer did the same thing this year. He's got two yeah. years left. The Boise starter, you know, who'd been a starter there for four years. And hey, man, it's a it's a billion dollar business. Like, mm-hmm. the, 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 you know, you don't have to be blindly loyal to your school. If you've, you've right. given and you've given academically and athletically, you, you, you get to make choices. And I think we're we're headlong in that era. And that's a uh, and that and that's a really good thing. Um, so. The the quarterback dance at Clemson will be interesting. I mean, Dabo, to his credit, like just didn't let this thing fester over the uh, over the program. You know, for this week, he said, "All right, you know, it, like here's DJ is our quarterback, and I do think DJ has earned has earned that." Now, by the way, has anybody handled quarterback controversy more classy than DJ Uyunglele? No, like, he was great. no pouting, great. no anything. It was much like Jalen Hurts. Yes, yes, but like he. Understood what Dabo did, praised him for it, was giddy for Cade to 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 go in and, and do what he did. So I, I've known DJ Uyungle since high school, been around him a lot. He's a he's a fantastic kid. And boy, you know, you 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 know, adversity reveals character, right? Like we've seen a lot about DJ Uyungle's character, um, mm-hmm. you know, as 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 this has unfolded in a difficult situation. I think the, the thing we learned most this season is how willing he was to improve in adversity and not run for it, right? He became a much, much better quarterback. That one bad half against Syracuse or you know, 35 bad minutes against Syracuse doesn't doesn't take all the progress away. And there has been distinct progress uh for DJ. So a lot, lot of credit there, a lot of credit to him. And if if Kate Klubnik does beat him out and, and agree, Pollock said something um early this season after the Georgia Tech game. He just felt like the offense had like a little bit of energy and synergy to it when Klubnik was in, like something that analytics can't quantify. It just things felt like they went and they clicked and they clicked a little bit better with him, with him in there. He's probably a pinch more accurate than, uh, than DJ. So you can get things flowing. The chains can move. Um, you know, the, the receivers maybe just like a tick more engaged because they, because they know things may be coming a little bit more on time. Um, so it will be, it will be very interesting to see, you know, if there is an or supping this year, how and when, uh, how and when that plays out. And it'd be interesting to see how DJ plays knowing the mm-hmm. hook could be coming, right? Like that's, that's, that's a different deal now. Um, and, uh, you know, I think in a lot of ways, Dabo's played this pretty well, right? Like, oh, by the way, Clemson still has a 14 game winning streak, which is the longest in all of college football. So that has never, uh, that has never been in jeopardy. And, uh, oh, oh, by the way, after a, uh, after a bye week, they go to South Bend and, you know, which is where DJ Uyungle had his collegiate, uh, coming out party in mm-hmm. the, uh, in the COVID year. Uh, I believe Trevor Lawrence had COVID and couldn't go to that game or couldn't start in that game. And, uh, DJ, you know, DJ justified all of his stars and hype coming in with, uh, with a monster, uh, with the monster performance in South Bend. So that will be uh, that will be a pretty interesting coda to see, you know, it, it's an interesting check mark on on this. And uh, for all of Notre Dame's offenses, plus their defense has been pretty good. So mm-hmm. I, I think that game could be a pretty good dogfight um, in 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 the matchup sense of it. 
Weekend Review is brought to you by Eckridge Smoked Sausage. Find them in the refrigerated meat aisle at your favorite grocery store to create one-of-a-kind sausage recipes. Eckridge, you do you. Before we move on, there's a new ESPN podcast I want to mention, the C.J. McCollum Show. Every week, New Orleans Pelican star C.J. McCollum discusses names and storylines in and around the NBA with perspective from inside the locker room and on the floor. You can follow the C.J. McCollum Show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So by the time that Clemson is tested, uh, whether that be potentially against South Carolina, who uh, kept the A&M train from finding the tracks again in South Carolina, suddenly has five wins, South Carolina or presumably ACC championship game against North Carolina, which looks like that's the way it will be, who will be the primary quarterback at Clemson in your judgment? I think it'll be Cade Clemson. I just think that if the operation runs smoother and he, you know, he, look, he answered the bell and won him a game that they easily could have lost. So mm-hmm. if the operation runs smoother, you have to think eventually the, the, the program's going to find its way there. And there's enough games where there will be doubt and flux going into the ACC title game where, where he can, uh, he can overtake them. So uh, I'm certainly not wishing anything away from DJ because he's had a fantastic season and uh, would be highly coveted if he did decide to transfer. Um, but you know, for right now, it you know you you'd have to think the way it's trending that the Klubnik eventually does get a chance to take over. Yeah, that's that's my gut on it too. And nothing against Kate Klubnik, who looks like a a terrific young quarterback prospect. But man, I, I'm I'm rooting for DJ. I sure. mean, I, I want yes. I want him to play well. You know, they've uh, they've got a week off. They go to Notre Dame. I want him to play well and to live this up because you already heard a lot of great things about him uh, from being around the Clemson program. But what you mentioned earlier about the grace with which he handled the situation, because let's not fool ourselves. Anybody who's been in anything similar to that, whether uh, in the athletic arena or outside of it, that's uh, that's a punch in the gut. It's heartbreaking. And and he to stand in there the way he did, uh, pure class. And it makes me makes me root for him, man. You know, I, I hope yeah. he yeah. I hope he plays well. Klubnik's going to get his chance. I mean, he's talented. He's going to have his have his moment. And I hope that DJ's able uh, able to do that do that as well. Uh, so now that we've been all nice to everybody, A uh, and M, 
man, Woo. week off, you know, get yourself together. And then, then they run the opening kickoff back on you at, at South Carolina and you lose again. Uh, you know, look, we'll talk about South Carolina. They deserve a little, a little pop there, but the A&M thing has gotten ridiculously sideways here. Yeah, let me uh, let me rattle off a few numbers that uh, our uh, our ninjas at ESPN Stats and Info, who do such a great job for us, uh, provided for me uh, sitting in a sitting in the Seattle airport uh, while I was uh, voyeuring this game on Saturday night. Nine straight games for Texas A&M versus FBS teams where they've scored under twenty five points. The only teams with longer active streaks are Colorado and Rutgers. Oh. A&M hasn't had an FBS game with 300 passing yards since the COVID year, October 2020. Remember, they beat Florida in College Station. Kellen Mond, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, And then since week 11 of last year, A&M is 2-6 versus FBS teams. That's the worst record of any FBS program in the state of Texas. That it's amazing that it is that it's worse than Texas, who and I don't want to jump around topics here, but it brought to mind yet another double digit blown lead for the Longhorns. Uh, while we're you know, Texas and Texas AM always try to outdo each other, Texas has blown five double digit leads dating to last season. That is the most in the FBS over that span. They blew a 21 point lead. Uh, in 21 to Oklahoma, two touchdowns to Oklahoma State, 11 to Baylor, two touchdowns earlier this year to Texas Tech, lost in overtime, and then uh, blew a 14-point lead in Stillwater on Saturday. And I got a fair amount of response on social media about my comment a couple of weeks ago that I felt like that Texas was about to take off and that at the end, uh, there were there were people who said that I said they would be in the playoff. I said no such thing. I said that they would be the team that would be hovering on the edge. People say, oh, you don't want any part of them now, you know, and they'll just miss out. But they show signs of being that. But until they learn to finish the deal, get the key stop, make the key completion, get the key drive, avoid the costly turnover in the clutch moments, because there are stats that we pull out sometimes that are aberrations. You go, wow, how in the world did that happen? But when it happens as frequently as the double-digit blown lead at Texas or the failure to score 25 points like Texas A&M, then it's real. There's something that's real that has to be addressed both places. And you keep doing the same thing over and over again. And, you know, obviously everybody knows the quote. It's not that it's insanity. You have to find a way to overcome it, to change it, to do something differently so it doesn't happen again. And uh, neither of those programs have been able to do that. Well, the Texas number, if we're going to skip around our underachieving uh, Longhorn State uh, (laughs) brethren, they had 14 penalties for over 100 yards. I think it was uh, uh, 14 for 119 Oklahoma State. Had zero. And yeah. Mike Gundy, who is known to troll a little trolling now, uh, <laughs> mentioned that the penalties were the biggest difference in the game. So yeah. which uh, which is a comment that will get brought up. It'll get brought up at Big 12 Media Day next year. It'll get brought up uh, until the uh, until the end of time. But he's 100 percent right. Now, Oklahoma yeah. State was pretty banged up in that game. 
they were without a couple receivers, a couple key defenders. Uh, they had one of their big tackles uh, retire basically and, and go to the NFL. Like, like it was not, it was not Oklahoma state's best. Spencer Sanders still dealing with his shoulder. Um, now I thought, did you see the third and seven pass that, that Quinn Ewers overthrew? It yes. looked like he overthrew. Did you yes. think Worthy pulled up on that? Yes. Yeah, I, 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 did. yeah didn't I did blame that. Now, Quinn Ewers did not have a good game. He, no, he, he did. Not. He did sail several balls, but that yes. one, I agree with you. Yes. But that one, boy, I think if Worthy runs under that, it's and then they shanked the field goal, like all mm-hmm. time shanked it. That thing was, you know, dead left. It looked like one of my golf drives. Um, So the so the, I thought that sequence right there where the receiver pulls up a little and and doesn't run under the shore touchdown. I mean, he had there was no defender within four yards of him. Um. And then the missed field goal, and you could you could all of a sudden feel it. It's like, oh, here comes the Texas choke. Um, and 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 certainly it, it played out. There was also I thought it was a drop ball late on the uh, on the last interception too, when it looked like they may have a crack at the end zone with no timeouts. When they sort of when they sort of ran down the field, uh, that seemingly went off receivers' hands, and uh, you know before mm-hmm. before the interception. So again, Quinn Ewers certainly could have played better, but uh, there was there was plenty of blame to go around. It felt like anytime they had momentum, there was a false start. That offensive line is still the glaring weakness of that program, and uh, yeah, it's just going to take some it's going to take some time to to, to build it. But uh, I think at this point, it's fair to say that there's just some general disappointment. I, mean, I watch that. I'm watching. I'm like, man, BJ Bijan Robinson is going to be this great NFL back, and people are going to be like, why wasn't Texas better when he was there? Mm-hmm. Um, it just it feels like his career is going to end up wasted a little bit. And on the Oklahoma State, we'll turn the page on Wednesday and look ahead. But Oklahoma State, with all of the injuries you've mentioned, I, I haven't seen an update yet. And maybe I overlooked it and you would know. But Jason Taylor on one of the interceptions late there, their terrific safety at Oklahoma yeah. State appears appeared to mm-hmm. have hurt himself on that. So they may be even more uh, undermanned when they go into Manhattan for uh, for a pretty sizable game to try to keep pace with TCU in the in the big 12 race right now on, on saturday let's go back to AM. let's finish the job there well, let's uh, do uh I, I what do you do there reese right like you you sit back you're right ross bjork six months ago you were saying nick saban's nervous because they're changing the power structure in the sec west now they're like re-establishing the basement in the sec west um you cannot fire jimbo fisher unequivocally there's zero chance you just extended him when you didn't need to so even any small window of it instead of being like obnoxious buyout it's untenable even in texas right so so how how can jimbo fisher save himself and save that program uh from here i'm going to go back to the thing that i've harped on you hear people say things that stick with you i think i think he's being bogged down by some institutional knowledge of what he thinks a jimbo fisher team slash offense is supposed to look like Mm -hmm. And whether that means that they're doing too much, that he's overly complex, that he needs to um, make it simpler for his quarterbacks to execute at a higher level, um, I think he needs to go in and listen to some outside voices, stay within whatever his philosophy is, but not be quite so rigid. They don't seem to be creative. They don't seem to get receivers open. They, their quarterback play, uh, you know, just hasn't been what a Jimbo Fisher quarterback looked like back in the days when he was running through. Uh, uh, forget about when he was a coordinator and he was dealing with all the guys he had at, at LSU and making mock better and turning Jamarcus Russell into the number one overall pick 
and then uh, EJ Manuel, Christian Ponder, and Jameis, uh, you know, and all of the guys he had that he did a great job with, and Kellen Mond, uh, too, for, for that matter. I think he needs to reassess what he's doing on offense, reassess his messaging and his approach, and, and try to see if there are some things that he has ingrained in him that need to be updated, that need a bit of a reboot, that need a fresh look. Because with the level that they've recruited at and the kind of athlete that they have, they should be they should be scaring the scaring the life out of you with guys like Stewart and A Chain. And before he got hurt and Nia Smith, but even when they were healthy, they didn't scare you. So I feel like that there's some that there's some institutional knowledge because of the success. Let, let me let me put it to you this way. I heard a heard a great psychologist say this not long ago, and this just occurred to me of the parallel between the two. He was talking about how if, if you become a celebrity or have some level of notoriety, that that becomes very dangerous because you get caught up in in your brand, and there's there's economic reward that goes along with the successful brand that you had. There's a response from people. There's your position in, in a community or in a, in a job in Jimbo's case that is caught up with you being Jimbo Fisher or being the head coach at Texas A&M or Florida state or wherever it is. And when you achieve that level of celebrity or notoriety, it can be, it, it can put you in a box. And it doesn't let you do anything that's outside of your brand because your brand has been successful for you. Hmm. And it keeps you from being anything new and you don't grow. And that's not good, man. You know, it's, it's not. You have to be able to grow. And so I think, and this is, look, this is from uh, afar, observing what's happening with readily admitting that I'm not in there day to day. There could be other things that, that are going on in that Texas A&M office that I don't know about that could make my judgment of this situation off. Readily admit that. But it seems to me that they are consumed by the celebrity or the notoriety or the level of achievement that he's had in the past that is keeping them from growing as one would expect them to grow. So that, that would be the thing to me. All right. So I, I hope you follow Message Board Geniuses on Twitter, the <laughs> the, the parody account. I'm sure you do, right? Uh, Sicko and Sicko's committee. Yeah, they're yeah, yeah two good followers. Yeah, they're, 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 yeah, they're, they yeah. are they are wonderful uh, <laughs> moments of levity. So I'm going to quote Message Board Geniuses, which every Saturday, like if the games kick off at noon Eastern by twelve twenty, they find people saying "fire everybody." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I really <laughs> think in in Jimbo's case, you may want to listen to some of the Texas posters because yeah. they they need a change, they need a shakeup, they need energy, and I am going to go beyond suggesting what you suggest in that they need to keep it within the prism of what he's done. I think they need to change completely. I think you need to rip the responsibility out of his hands, let them manage the let him manage the program day to day and give the offense it, it would be too tempted for him to to lean back in if it's still sort of mm -hmm. under his umbrella. I think you he needs to give it all up and let it go. Um now, is that like a Zach Kitley situation? Do they do they drop a Brinks trucks for Alex Golish um, and, and do something radically schematically? Both those guys, what both those guys do would make Jimbo Fisher nervous. And I honestly think 
for them to change the way they need to change with their offense being in such a quagmire, they need to do something that's going to make Jimbo Fisher nervous. Because quite frankly, what's happening now isn't working to like a a, a Rutgers Colorado extent. So mm-hmm. you you can't uh, you you can't go in um, you know with a shovel. You need to go in with a jackhammer. I think that's that's where they that's where they are right now. Now let me let me add this dollop before I kick it back to you. They have obviously. You can you can semantic me on this how you want, but they've obviously bought a lot of players to NIL. Legally, I'm not casting any dispersions, but they've right. obviously made themselves a destination from NIL. Kudos to them. They've gamed this system. The problem with buying players is if they don't have success, and we saw this in college basketball for years with teams that would go drop bags for like top recruits. And if those guys aren't successful or motivated, they're going to be really motivated to leave because nothing is mm-hmm. – now, I don't know what their contracts look like, all that stuff, but – what is preventing an exodus from AM? And you can you we can have the same conversation, put the word Miami in there too. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. what is preventing an exodus right now? If you win the NIL game, I don't know how retention is there. And again, every contract is going to be different, et cetera. But like that would be a primary concern right now. And that's why you can't futz around and do this in March, because mm-hmm. those kids went there to win. And not only are they losing, but they're having a bad experience. I mean, that offense is miserable to watch. Mm-hmm. So um, we I'm going to kick it back to you because you had something but, to say. But we do no, need no, to no. I want to ask Wigman you a question just, because yeah, you brought up you brought up something. You've been around and we need to stop. We do, do both. We've both been around a long time. So I'm going to try <laughs> to stop saying that. Um, when have you seen a head coach be successful? if he was asked to do something that he wasn't on board with. Now, I'm not just asking that rhetorically because to your point, if it is true that you have to take a jackhammer and a shovel to this at A&M, well, you know who has to have the biggest jackhammer and shovel? Jimbo Fisher. Mm-hmm. Yes. He has Absolutely. to, it, or Absolutely. else it won't work. Yes. So I think back to Brian Kelly after the 4-8. and eight. Right. Mm -hmm. He was not play calling necessarily, but he was involved and he divorced himself from that stepped back. They, they brought in a new strength coach. Like that is the one thing in my mind, like that is a legit reboot that worked to the point where I know other coaches like Tom Herman went and visited him when he did his reboot because it worked so well. And it was such a distinct change and that, but look, there's a lot that don't right. Like you, you, you know, the, you, the old uh, the old Lee Corso line about uh, the problem with firing coordinators is you're next. You know, <laughs> now I, I will say their defense. I haven't looked at Monday stats yet uh, from the weekend, but their defense was top 15 in the country. DJ Durkin's done a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to play defense when the offense just keeps handing the ball back. So uh, but I think when you step back philosophically from failure and this season has been a failure for Texas A&M. There, there aren't any subtle responses in my mind that work. The, the unique thing here, Reese, is the level of financial commitment to him has mm-hmm. to make the administration motivated to make it work with him. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of times ADs are like, all right, you want to go hire your buddy or you want to keep that dolt OC, you'll just you'll just hang yourself out to dry. Well, in this case, it, the buyout would go from 91 million to 83 million. And I'm kind of making up those numbers, but whatever mm-hmm. they are, they are mm-hmm. obnoxious, untenable, unthinkable numbers. Um for, for, for any, for anybody anywhere. And so um, it like everyone has to be motivated to come up with a plan to overhaul this thing because it is, it is, it is failing. Um, l- let me spin this back to you. Do you start? And I thought Connor Wigman looked okay against South Carolina. I don't think he looked 
you know, it wasn't like, oh my God, he's the answer. Um, but anyway, but you go uh, home Ole Miss, home Florida at Auburn. Do you just let it rip? Like, hey, do you, does Jimbo Fisher's ego allow him to say this season is over? We need to plan for the future and let Connor Wigman, who is the future, go. I would. What do you got to lose at this point? If yes. you really believe that. And let me offer this caveat. And he's ready. Yes. Because if he's not ready, you can ruin him. The mm-hmm. the the Jalen Daniels of the world, the Kansas quarterback who mm-hmm. played entirely too early and mm-hmm. got beat up and still uh, overcome that and play at a high level. I, I tend to believe that is more the exception than the rule. So if yes. Connor Wegman is is his mental approach, his constitution, his makeup is okay with taking some knocks and he at least has a fighting chance when he's on the field in terms of understanding, then absolutely let him go. But if you are risking ruining him or setting back his development, then it becomes a different part of the equation. And that's why coaches get paid those big bucks. You brought up something really interesting about turning loose this morning. And we are taping this podcast a little bit later on Monday than normal because I went to an event that Seth Greenberg, our basketball friend, does, which is a, a great event. It's for the V Foundation. Connecticut uh, college basketball coaches in the state of Connecticut come together for breakfast and fundraising awesome. opportunities. Very cool. One of the coaches there said during the panel thing, they were talking about NIL and re-recruiting your own guys and trying to keep people out of the portal. Said something that I think pertains to Jimbo's situation as it pertains to being the guy who calls the plays and run the offense. He said, the amount of time that we spend on actual basketball is far less than people would imagine because of all of the other things that come with being a head coach. And this is a guy who was, well, you'll know it's not Danny Hurley. This is a guy that is at a smaller school in Connecticut, Division One, but a smaller school mm-hmm. in Connecticut. And you'll magnify that by about $93 million or whatever the buyout is for what Jimbo has to deal with as a head coach at Texas A&M. So I think there's a little bit to that as well because Jimbo's play sheet is not Mike Leach's play sheet. Maybe mm-hmm. if you had six plays, you know, like Leach and you're at Mississippi State where you can kind of do your thing, maybe you can do it. But A&M is a, or any job of that ilk is a far different situation. Yeah. You know, it'll be interesting for Jimbo too, uh, as we've, we've started his reinvention right here on the podcast. Yeah, we um, have. You know, he's, he's getting ready for old Miss and we're, we're, we're already recasting his career. Um, he is an unbelievably inefficient coach to work for. If you talk to people from the Florida state years and the AM years, he's like the master of the like meandering staff meeting. There's not quick decisions. You know, it's an offense driven program. He calls the plays, the defense, like feels like they're sitting around, like puttering through a lot of things. Like there are a lot of inefficiencies that all of a sudden now, but if you're winning and you're going nine and three and you're going like those things don't get exposed. And I do think that giving some staff some autonomy and just making the general day-to-day operation better is going to be, have to be part of his, uh, his improvement there. Um, The NIL thing's interesting because if you take the the true NIL spirit, it's these outside firms doing this stuff. And Jimbo has been very clear that he doesn't have anything to do with it. Da, 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 da. So I, but I do think like how you're going to manage your roster through this free fall 
is is going to be really indicative of where you go forward. I, I agree. And it's it's at a tipping point mm-hmm. because it might be untenable to to make the change, but if they don't make a make a philosophical change, a something that leads to winning, then ultimately that change is going to be made. They have to they have to do something differently. You referenced Brian Kelly's reboot at Notre Dame within a season. Uh, that looked pretty good after mm-hmm. getting down seventeen to three to Ole Miss on Saturday and outscoring them forty two to three the rest of the way. Now all of a sudden they look like a home threat to Alabama in a couple of weeks. Yeah, well, I think in our, our loyal listeners would know like there's a lot of respect for Brian Kelly on this podcast just mm-hmm. for the body of work, right? Mm-hmm. Done at different times, different places, D two national titles. Like Brian Kelly is is a crafty head coach who when given a very good team has shown what, what was the bear had a number going into the season. He'd won like 40 straight games as a favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Something um, like that. I, don't yeah, I mean, just pre- number. preposterous. Like he, he is good at winning football games. He's been good at it for a long time. He's closing in on his 25th year as a college football head coach. So um, the, the evolution of, of, of Jaden Daniels through Mike Denbrock and Joe Sloan's offense there has been significant and, I really feel like is one of the things like, okay, how have they gotten so much better? Well, Jaden Daniels has gone from like a one read and run guy to, uh, you know, to more polished, uh, more dynamic quarterback than, uh, than that. And that's, that's what good coaches do. They, they don't just treat players like they're in a box. They let them develop them. And uh, yeah, I look like the idea of Nick Saban going to the swamp and LSU being a threat is a lot of fun. And let's face it. There's some holes on this Alabama team. We've talked about it some uh, here and there, but they are, they're just not some like, 2011 juggernaut who's gonna who's gonna choke you out every time like there are just there are just enough holes where and look look at their road performances too and you know recently like they mm-hmm. there is vulnerabilities with bam on the road at this point so i think that'd be a lot of fun it's a vibrant tiger stadium is good for the sport and uh i really feel like brian kelly has resuscitated the uh the, the energy there after a bit of a slow start yeah death valley on a on a saturday night i i assume that's going to be a night game because I believe Georgia and Tennessee would be the afternoon game then. So mm. um, the following week, that's a that's a pretty good week. We've got a a good week coming up here as well. Briefly before we get into dumb loses more than smart wins, really looking forward to going to Jackson State College Game yes. Day headed there this week. Deion Sanders has quickly built a juggernaut there there this is a a great rivalry between the two there there's a lot of pageantry and passion surrounding the game too and then there's also the storyline in addition to uh, Jackson State performing as well as it has on the field there's the storyline that Deion Sanders is a legitimate uh candidate for a power five head coaching job where would that be uh, I'm sure you've had, as I have, had people ask about him. Um, and then it calls into question, you know, he has viewed this as being uh, part of his mission to uh, revitalize uh, the program at Jackson State and the HBCU. How does that dovetail in if he does indeed take the next step? Because the unique thing about a guy like Deion Sanders, for everything he's accomplished to be a coach at a power five school to validate his credentials or validate himself. He may choose to and feel that that's a way to further 
um, what he views as his mission in ministry, or he may not. But it is, it's a fascinating storyline. And we often say on College Game Day that we like to follow the great stories, no matter what. And to me, uh, what he is doing there and the interest it has generated uh, from the highest levels of college football is uh, is is very is fascinating. And it'll be interesting. We look forward to having him on the show Saturday morning. Absolutely. First of all, we have to get the name of this this game right. It is the Boombox Classic, Reese. Boombox right? Classic. Boombox yep. Classic. So you have uh, – I'm, I'm excited just for the setting, the pageantry – uh, to you know, this is a, an elite HBCU game, and uh, I think there's a lot of cool things that are uh, that, that are going to kind of come come with uh, game day there on Saturday. I'm excited to learn and see a little bit more about Travis Hunter, who's the number one recruit in the country, mm-hmm. who stunned everybody by going to Jackson State. Now, unfortunately, he hasn't played much. He's been uh, he's been banged up. He just came back last week, I believe. He played in the opener, missed five games, and then came back against Campbell for Jackson State on on Saturday. Um, he's a DB who's also played some receiver and. Uh, is really one of the more compelling players and stories in all of college football this year. But Coach Prime is obviously always going to be the story wherever he is. And I've I've called around a little bit because it's going to be a topic on the show on Saturday. It's going to be a topic as the season goes on. Uh, you know, his name has been attached, especially the Arizona State job. And there are other places that are certainly going to knock on the door. And quite frankly, Arkansas knocked, TCU's knocked. So some schools have have interviewed Sanders, and he's performed well in the interviews. Um, and every Deion Sanders coaching conversation has to start with the fact that he's Deion Sanders, right? So the normal news rules aren't going to apply. Now, he got hired in September of 2020. So he has not been a head coach for very long. So I think when you when you ask people why haven't they hired him, I think some of it is just like general inexperience. And again, you, you mentioned not being an FBS head coach, Reese, which which makes sense. I do think when you go from FCS to FBS and everything you do is magnified and matters, that it, he's made some people nervous. He's had some outbursts. Remember, he yelled at the reporter for for calling him Dion and not mm-hmm whatever he would prefer to be called coach, coach prime Park. is what coach he prime. What, yes yeah. yes so like there were just some things like that where if you do that at georgia tech you're going to get mocked in the atlanta media for two weeks whereas that mm-hmm. was just like a day day long dust up so there have been some things like that where it, you know decision makers are like mm, i don't want to do that like uh he is sort of again some of this may be just manufacturing publicity for jackson state and he's done mm-hmm. a very good job of that there's, yeah, there's yes. no question like there, yeah. there there's no question but i do think Experience is a factor. Having not been in a high-end program and FBS level has also been a factor. And I think people are open to the idea of it happening. These ADs tend to be pretty risk-averse. And college presidents are even more Mm risk-averse. So you have two subsets where I say, are we going to be the ones that that push over the line? Um, I do think that at some point in this cycle, he's going to be taken a lot more seriously. Uh, Arizona State is a place, depending on who makes the hire, who could, you know, that could that could take a long look. If a job like Memphis Open that's had success with Penny Hardaway, who kind of came in with very little experience mm-hmm. in the in the coaching realm, and Penny's done a good job there. Um, and that's certainly generated a lot of excitement and helped elevate that program. That's an aspirational program, right? Like they'll take mm-hmm. the risk to crush it because they want to get in the next iteration of realignment, et cetera. So that that's a general example. Obviously, I'm not wishing anything away for Ryan Silverfield. Um but that th- those it, it would have to be a kind of school that has some ambition and it needs to stand out. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think Georgia Tech would be a good fit just uh, 
for, for, for myriad reasons. I do think he could capture Atlanta, but it's, I think Dion would work in an initial burst. What I'd want to hear is his plan for sustained success, mm-hmm. staffing, etc. How do you plan on going and not just getting a adrenaline rush from getting a Travis Hunter, but how do you go and really have a five, 10 year plan to, to lock in for, for the long term? Well, that that's I think that's true with any coaching hire. And it's one of the difficult things for the athletic director, because especially if you hire a coach that is not popular with the fans, but that wouldn't be a problem with Dion. I'm speaking more generally here Then until he plays and wins a bunch of games. You have to hear about how you lost the press conference, you know, and how why do they hire this guy? And it also creates a little bit of um it creates its own set of expectations of failure when when the fans are already sit waiting to pounce and say, well, yeah, see, that's not the guy you should have hired. I mean, the, the quintessential example of that is sitting at Auburn and sort of twisting in the wind of Brian Harson right now. You know, we've talked about this, and I won't beat this up or go down this hole again, but I think Harson's a good coach. I thought mm-hmm. he was a wise hire in terms of big picture. I want to find a really good coach who can establish – you know, his culture on a program, but it didn't fit at Auburn at that time. And it ended up, you know, leading to uh, Alan Green leaving the athletic director, who I also think is a a terrific guy. And it's going to lead to Brian Harson having to find another job. And I also think he's a really good coach. So that's, that's a very good point about, it's not just because it's Dion, but it might be amplified because of um, the largeness of his personality that it has to be a place where it's really going to fit because there's there's fit in that direction that wouldn't work. And then there's fit in the opposite direction, sort of why the Harson Auburn thing is not working. So I, I remember talking to FAU's president. He was a British gentleman. I don't think he's the president there anymore. When they hired Lane Kiffin, back when Lane Kiffin was pretty divisive and mm-hmm. hadn't quite hadn't quite rounded back to where he is now at Old Miss. And basically he was like, we're an aspirational university. Every mm-hmm. viral moment, every crazy thing that Lane does is only going to draw attention to, to Florida Atlantic. So he took sort of Lane's virability, I just think I just made up a word, as a positive um, for FAU. So again, it's not perfect, that analogy, but I do think you have to have someone who is going to want to embrace the good and the bad that's going to come with the the amplified uh, magnifying glass that uh, that Dion would bring? Let's go. Let's go down a quick rabbit hole. You yeah. you brought up the incident with um, with Dion, the, you know, taking exception to not being called um, coach. And I remember in that moment that he asked he asked a question: Would you do that to Nick Saban? And my answer was yes. Yeah, I mean, what? When oftentimes when I say coach, I like I might say it to, uh, and this is not a hard and fast rule. I'll probably say it to Lee Corso, but it's almost like a term of endearment. Yeah, sure. I would say it, you know, I'd say it to the guys I've worked with, whether it's you know, Lou Holtz or Digger Phelps or whoever it might be, Bob Knight. You know, I would say it as a more of a term of, of affection or something, uh, like like you might say, pal or bud or whatever, but. I sort of look at it, and I'm not trying to prove any point, but none of these guys coached me at anything. I mean, a couple of them have probably given me some good advice over the years. So, I I mean, I, I call him Nick Nick and Kirby Kirby and, uh, you know, Jim Bayheim Jim. And I, I I call Mike Krzyzewski Mike most of the time, you know? And, you know, so I I don't know. So where do you stand on that as a reporter? Uh, 
The only time I call a coach coach is when I can't remember his name. <laughs> I'm probably gonna probably gonna get that one thrown back in my face at some point. But like when I'm at like Peach Jam and I, I you know, you can't quite place somebody because there's 1,200 of these guys and they're at all all different places. And and I'm like peering at the logo on their shirt. I'll say, "What's up, coach?" Other than that, I am a strict first name guy. That is yeah, just, I- that's the way I've. I've grown up in it, and that's uh, that. There aren't a uh, there aren't a ton of exceptions. Th- this is a funny aside to that. When you are talking to coaches who just sit around and blather on the phone so much, they'll call me coach sometimes. Just in like they, they don't even remember who they're talking to. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's a it, it is a verbal habit that they do. But to your point, Jim Herrick, who one of the funniest human beings on the on the planet, to me. Mm-hmm. Jim couldn't remember anybody's name. So yeah. he'd give you that little short handshake where he keeps his elbow attached to his rib cage and he'll look at you and go, Hey, coach, how you doing, <laughs> coach? You know, everybody was coached. That way, you know, <laughs> you get it done yeah. easily that way. So yes. but no, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty good with names, but sometimes it's just like time and place and you 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 just blank for a second. So it's a good, it is it's a good filler, uh re, you know, respectful term in that uh in that moment. But yeah, yeah it's in its context too. Like I was I was walking through an airport and I still don't know for sure if it was him. He's he's not a coach, but I would have bet a lot of money that I saw that that a guy I walked past was Cooper Manning. And he's kind of at a distance, and I was like, which I, most people know as uh, Peyton and Eli's older brother. And I was like, should I? But it, the, it was out of yeah. context. It was kind of the wrong place. It was an airport you wouldn't likely expect to see Cooper Manning. Maybe I didn't. And I ultimately didn't didn't go up and, you know, <laughs> embarrass myself. Say, hey, hey, Coop, what's going on? You know, something. I wasn't sure. But anyway, uh, time and place that can get you with uh, with the coaches too. dumb loses more than smart wins. Did you happen um, did you happen to see Weber State and the series of adventures trying to snap the ball to the punter against Montana I State? I did not. I heard you reference it earlier on our game day call, and I actually like, viscerally reacted like, oh, God, that sounds awful. It they Four times, Pete, four times they snapped the ball over the head of the punter and wound up with safeties. They gave up four safeties. Eight in the game, points. In the game that they lost by five. They're having a really good season, too. Remember, they kicked the tar out of Utah State earlier this year. It was like 35 to 7 or something. Um, Jay Hill's done a remarkable job there. What what did they have, Montana last year? Yeah, it was Montana State. They lost their undefeated record because they couldn't get the punt snap right. And uh, the fourth safety, uh, the players were consoling the long snapper, but it, it called to mind. Uh, something that I remember from Lou Holtz that, that Weber State would have been wise to have employed. Holtz told Steve Berline when he got the job before the 1986 season, he, he came in and he told Berline, he, he said, Steve, he goes, I guarantee you next season you will not throw more than six interceptions. The whole season. And Berline, I've forgotten the number, he'd thrown a bunch of interceptions the previous year. And Steve was like, wow, that, that's great, coaches. Some system of, of reading the defense, some route concept together that will make us better. And Lou looked at him and said, no, because after you throw the six, when you're coming out of the game, <laughs> you won't throw seven. You're on the bench for the rest of the season. The, you know, the point being, the bigger point being that he was going to stop something bad from happening. One happens. 
two, you're going, what's going on? And if you risk a, a punt on third for a third time and they snap it, have a bad snap for a third time, give up a third safety, well, then I don't care the down and distance situation. It's already a disaster. You might as well, you might as well just go for it on fourth down. It's not going to be any worse, right? Instead of giving them the two points and giving them the ball, you're, you know, you're just likely to just give them the ball. You might save yourself the two or something. So dumb loses more than smart wins. At some point, you got to realize your long snapper, it's not his day. Just go for it. Everything's four down territory. If you're going to give up the ball and the points, no matter what to begin with. So, yeah, it took a lot. It took a lot to, it took a lot to knock Miami's eight turnovers off the dumb loses more than smart wins board. (laughs) Took a lot. Eight turnovers. That's remarkable. How Um, did that happen? Mike Elko. Who'd have thought Mike Elko would be like the rookie coach we're all raving about in late October in the ACC, as opposed to Mario Cristobal? How about that? You know, I'm sure that among uh, I tweeted on, which is another obnoxious thing. I don't like when people talk about what they put on social media. But after Oregon played so well, I made mention of the fact that not only did they, they beat their favorite former coach in Chip, but if any of them had happened to notice that Miami and FAU had lost. And it could be the, a glorious day if somehow Oregon State and Washington could have lost too, but uh, that didn't happen. And I was assured that they had noticed the fate of their other former coaches as well on that day. So yeah, probably, probably something they're paying, uh, they're paying attention to there. It, uh, it, it, it's compound interest for all the buyout money they got too. So. <laughs> I guess so. Going to be a fun week. I know we don't have quite as many ranked versus ranked matchups. How tricky will it be for you know Tennessee to you know to have to deal with Kentucky at home? Uh, you've got Michigan and Michigan State in a rivalry game. Certainly not ranked teams. Uh, Oklahoma State and Kansas State. All games that we'll talk about later in this week on the College Game Day podcast. Pete, have any uh, parting recommendations? Any news you want to break right before we leave here? No, I'm good. All right, good. I think. All right, uh, I think we're. Uh, I think we're, we're. We're ready to ready to run. I will say this: these are the weekends that turn into the best weekends when you're like, ah, there's nothing happening, and then all of a sudden TCU's down twenty in the third quarter at West Virginia. Like these are the weekends that make college football great because you're like, ah, it's kind of a kind of a slow, and then all of a sudden there's just this bullet train of things that happen throughout the day. And TCU has proven adept at digging themselves out of holes. They've done it uh, twice in two weeks, 17 points down to Oklahoma state and won 18 points down to Kansas state and won. But both those games were at home. Let's see what happens if they, if they were to get in trouble, only a touchdown favorite at Milan Pushkar stadium in Morgantown uh, Saturday at noon, that game immediately follows college game day from Jackson State. We'll be talking to you later this week. Whenever you get the urge to listen to the podcast, we urge you to download the College Game Day podcast at any place that you prefer to get such quality uh, audio delights and listen to us. For Pete Thamel, I'm Reese Davis. We'll see you on Wednesday. <laughs>